Remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text from Romans 3, verse 24. I'm going to start in verse 21 there in your handout. Listen to God's Word. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, to which the law and the prophets bear witness. That is, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all and on all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word, Your promises, and Your Gospel in Jesus Christ. And we pray that once again, You would enlarge our hearts to receive it, to believe it, and then to go from here doing it. Not just in word, but also in deed. We need Your help to understand these truths, to understand our sin, to understand Your grace and to understand the freeness of our redemption. And we ask for your help in doing this, even in this hour. We ask for it for Christ's sake. Amen. You can be seated. Let me see if I forgot to turn my mic. Is my mic on? Okay, good. Okay. Well, I'm glad to see those of you that I haven't seen before, and some of you that I haven't seen in a while. To remind you where we are, or to inform you for the first time what we're doing here, we're, we're walking through the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 3, and we've taken a little bit of a, we're well, not a break, we're, we're, we're taking uh, some time, extra time to dive deep into the gospel as Paul proclaims it, as Paul explains it in Romans 3, 21 to 26. And so we've spent already a few weeks now unpacking this monumental paragraph. Today we're going to narrow in just on one verse that's right in the middle. Verse 24. And then we'll come back next week, look at the last half, and then uh, maybe we'll move on. We'll see. When God created Adam at the beginning of creation and put him in the Garden of Eden, Adam was without sin. He was sinless, but he wasn't technically righteous. I'll explain what I mean by that. God had declared Adam and Eve to be perfect. They, along with everything else God had made, were good, even very good, God says. But they had not yet attained to righteousness. Of course, neither were they unrighteous. They were not guilty of any sin. Therefore, they, were not, they had not been declared unrighteous before God. But they also had not performed all of God's law. They had not obeyed all of God's commandments. They hadn't fulfilled the law, to use Pauline, Pauline language. Therefore, they had not been declared righteous before God. Adam's goal, you see, was to avoid unrighteousness and to achieve righteousness. 
When God put Adam in the garden, He established a covenant relationship with him. The prophet Hosea explicitly refers to this relationship between God and Adam as a covenant. A covenant. Theologians, Reformed theologians in particular, have appropriately called it a covenant of works. And so, so why do we call it a covenant of works? Well, it's because Adam was expected to do certain works faithfully. He was required to perform certain acts of, of obedience in order to become, to be declared righteous before God. And of course, this wasn't difficult. Adam was made perfect without a, the flesh, without a sin nature. And so God had equipped him to obey his word faithfully and to attain to the glory of God and to not fall short of the glory of God. In this primeval covenant between God and Adam, God gave Adam commands. He gave Adam his law. Adam was on divine orders. Do you remember what the first commandment was? The first commandment to mankind. It was, yeah, it was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God also ordered Adam and Eve to subdue the earth. Then came the command to have dominion over the animals. We find these positive commands in Genesis 1 verse 28. We find more positive commands in Genesis 2 verse 15 where God, we're told that God had already given Adam the task of working and keeping the garden. And the implication there is that he was to spread the garden so that, it, so that the whole earth was paradise, was the Garden of Eden. That's what we see in the rest of the Old Testament. That was the implication as that gets unpacked in the rest of Scripture. They were given then, at that point, they were given a negative commandment. The only negative command given by God in that covenant of works established with Adam. You remember what it is, the famous negative command. We read it in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's a spiritual death first initially, but also physical death to follow. Separation from God. The table was set. God had placed man in the middle of paradise and given him an abundance of trees and plants to eat from. Including the tree of life right in the middle of the garden. And so right in the middle of paradise was, were two trees. One was a means of grace and life. We could call it the sacrament of the promise of God to give eternal life, to confirm, to, to, to signify and seal the promise of life. That's why it's called the tree of life. But the other tree was a means of curse and death, particularly if they ate from it before God said they could, if, if He was ever going to say that they could. But He clearly said they couldn't, at least at this point. And so if they did, it was a means of curse and death. So the tree of life, the sacrament of eternal life, the sign and seal of God's gift, 
if man had eaten from the tree of life, God would have confirmed to Adam the gift of eternal life. If Adam had resisted Satan's temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if he had eaten instead from the tree of life, he would, have, he would not have experienced spiritual or physical death. He would not have become unrighteous. Instead, if he had obeyed, he would have attained to righteousness. His obedience would have made him righteous before God. And God would have declared him to be righteous on the basis of Adam's faithfulness to God's law. But that's not what happened, is it? Instead, as Hosea 6 verse 7 says, Adam transgressed the covenant. That's what Hosea says. He transgressed the covenant. He was unfaithful to God and broke His law. Mankind went from sinless to sinful, from being at peace with God to being at enmity with God, at war with God, from having perfect fellowship with God to being condemned by God. Instead of becoming righteous, man became unrighteous before God. Adam went from being free, completely free, to being a slave to sin and death. When God met with the serpent and with mankind, fallen mankind, in the garden, He issued judgments and curses, but He also made a promise. In Genesis 3.15, God said there would be ongoing hostilities between the serpent and the woman, and between the serpent's seed descendants and the woman's seed or offspring. And, and eventually there would be an offspring of the woman who, Genesis 3.15 says, would crush the head of the serpent and his offspring and it would destroy his works as 1 John 3 says it. The entire Old Testament eagerly anticipates the birth of the woman's offspring. It anticipates the coming of the Savior who would free mankind from our bondage to sin death, and the devil. A few thousand years after Adam sinned in the garden, God chose Israel to be a special people. He gave Israel eventually the law. And Israel was unable to bear up under that law. The law wasn't able to redeem Israel. It wasn't able to release Israel from her bondage his bondage, her bondage, Israel's bondage to sin. The law didn't help the Jews or anyone else in the world achieve a righteous status before God. The, the law only hide, highlighted Israel's sin and by extension the sin of the whole world, as Paul puts it in Romans 3. The whole world is guilty before God, he says. When Adam failed to merit righteousness, he made it impossible for all of his descendants to merit righteousness. When he broke God's law in the garden, he and all his descendants became guilty before God and we became unable, totally unable to obey God's law. 
When Adam plunged himself into sin, he made himself and the rest of mankind slaves to sin. And now every single descendant of Adam and Eve is conceived in bondage to sin. We need to be saved from our predicament. And this salvation must come from the outside. Outside of us. We don't have the internal resources. We can't rescue ourselves. We lost the ability to obey. We forfeited our ability to be faithful. And what we need is a twofold salvation. First, we need to be redeemed, to use Paul's language here, or rescued from slavery. Not, not slavery to Egypt, something far worse than that. Slavery to sin, guilt, and condemnation. We're slaves, natural born slaves to those things. Second, we need somehow, having been redeemed, we need to be declared righteous before God. That's the twofold salvation that we need. Since we can't come up with a righteousness of our own, since we can't measure up to God's standards in His law, in His perfect law, our only hope is that God might give us his righteousness. In other words, we need all of mankind, every person who's ever been born of a woman besides Jesus, needs a righteousness that we can't get on our own. It's nowhere to be found inside any person. It can't be obtained by obeying the law. Paul says in Romans 3.20, right before the passage, passage we read, for by the works of the law, no flesh will be declared righteous before God. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. When God gave Moses the law, he did, it didn't save anyone. It couldn't. It only exposed how bad it really is. Again, that's not the law, law's fault. It's our fault. It, it only helps us to see that we're a lot worse than we think. Yet Paul says there's good news. Verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Verse 22 says, It's the righteousness of God that you receive through faith in Jesus Christ. God's saving righteousness has finally been fully manifested, fully revealed, fully made known in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And Paul reminds us in verse 23 that this saving righteousness is universally needed. For all have sinned, Paul says, and all have fallen short. And all continually fall short of the glory of God. No one is left out there. All are conceived condemned. Every one of us. Natural born sinner. No one attains to God's glory the way Adam should have and could have in the garden. No one successfully resists the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of us are equally guilty. But there has been one person born of a woman who did bear up faithfully under the law of God. Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a wo woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
that we might receive adoption as sons. So today we come to point three on your outline. Saving righteousness given. We covered the first two points last time. Today we're going to look just at saving righteousness given. Through His Son, God has given us the righteousness that we failed to get in the garden and that we now have no ability to get on our own. Verse 24 explains how this works. It explains how God gives it to us. Sort of the the mechanism or the, the instrument. It's given in a declaration. It's given by grace. And it's given through redemption. Verse 24 says that we are declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. First, God gives us His saving righteousness in a declaration. Now, the word, the verb, declared righteous, in in my translation, it's often translated justified. Most of the time. The doctrine of justification is the doctrine of how a person is declared righteous before God. The Greek word for righteousness is dikaiosune. Okay, just listen to that word, dikaiosune. Can you hear? I want you to hear the dikai root there in dikaiosune. That root, dikai, means righteous. Okay, that's kind of the semantic core, righteous. And you can hear the same root in the verb that gets translated justified, but I I translated it declared righteous. The verb is dikaio. Okay, you see the the dikai root in each one? Dikaiosune, righteousness. Dikaio, declared, to declare righteous. So I translate it declared righteous because that translation expresses the root meaning of the Greek word and it it shows us that these two words, righteousness and justify or declare righteous have the same stem, the same root. We need to see that. And it'd be better if our translations could bring that out. And so every time you see the verb justified in your English translation of the book of Romans, just remind yourself that it means declared righteous. You might also remind yourself that it doesn't mean made righteous. Okay? It doesn't mean made righteous. Righteous, as if God comes into you and makes you righteous on the inside, infuses righteousness into you so that you truly are righteous in some way, and then God says that you're justified or declared righteous because of this internal work, because of good fruit or obedience. Now, He doesn't make us righteous in that way. When God saves a person, He doesn't make that person righteous. He simply declares that person righteous. And it doesn't mean it's less true. It's a declaration that's rooted in reality. It's rooted in our true union with Christ. A real union so that what's His is ours. His righteousness is ours. And it's declared to be ours because it's imputed or credited to us. 
this understanding of that word that it means declared righteous, not make righteous, it's especially clear in a passage in the Gospels, in Luke 7. And we don't have to, we won't get into the context. Just listen to what verse 29 says. When all the people heard Jesus say this, including the tax collectors, okay, they declared God to be righteous. Some translations say they justified God or they declared God just. Well, that verb is dikaio, declared God righteous. Now, when these people declared God to be righteous, they weren't making God righteous as if, as if he was unrighteous before they declared him to be righteous. And the same is true when God declares you to be righteous in Christ. He's declaring what's true of you because you are united to Jesus by faith. A real union. And so when you put your faith in Jesus, your unrighteousness becomes His. And His righteousness becomes yours. He absorbs the condemnation that your sin deserves. And you receive the righteous standing before God that Christ's perfect obedience deserves. You remember what Luther called this? Somebody say it if you know it. The, I think I heard it. The great, the great exchange. Paul describes the great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is where Luther got it, among other places. This is one of the most clear passages. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For God made Him, Christ, made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Another name for the great exchange is double imputation. Your unrighteousness gets imputed to Christ. It gets credited to His account. And Christ's righteousness gets imputed to you. It gets credited to your account. And the reason Christ had to die the death of a cursed sinner and experience the judgment of God is that He was clothed with your and, and my unrighteousness. Truly. The union is real. And so the righteousness was really His. And so He had to pay for it. Thankfully, thanks be to God that He could endure it and rise from the dead. God counted your sin against Christ. He imputed your righteousness to Christ, which is why Christ had to suffer your punishment on the cross. And the good news is that God counted Christ's righteousness to you. He imputed Christ's perfect obedience to you, which is why you are declared righteous before God. The reason you get to be with God when you die instead of experiencing His judgment forever is that you've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. He was clothed with your unrighteousness. You were clothed with His righteousness. So if you belong to Jesus, if you're trusting in Christ, in the Son of God, then God has not just pardoned you from your sins. You have not merely been brought to a place of neutrality with God. God doesn't just look at you as if you have, have never done anything wrong. 
he actually looks at you as if you've done everything right. It's both. He declares you to be and truly considers you to be as righteous as Christ is because His righteousness really, truly, genuinely has become yours. Believe this, people of God. When Jesus was on the cross, God declared Him to be, considered Him to be, treated Him as if He were unrighteous. He became sin, Paul says. As unrighteous as you are, your sin, because your unrighteousness really, truly, genuinely became His. He got what you deserved, and yet, and, and you get what He deserved. He got what you deserved, and you get what He deserved. So you've not just been forgiven. You've also been given positive righteousness. The very righteousness of God, which is the gift here in this passage. Let that sink in. So on what basis does or can God give away His righteousness? What must you do to qualify for it? Nothing. It's given by grace. Paul says we're declared righteous by His grace as a gift. He kind of says it two different ways. He's piling it up. And that phrase, as a gift, is, is one word in the Greek that just means totally free, without price, at no cost whatsoever. Revelation 22, verse 17 illustrates how this word works for us. It uses the same adverb when it says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without cost. Another translation says, take the water of life without price. Zero dollars and zero cents. The saving righteousness that God gives is an outgrowth of pure grace. God's grace. What is grace? Well, well grace is unearned favor with God. Unmerited favor with God. God's saving grace is a gift that you have done nothing to merit or deserve. Saving grace is unadulterated gift. You were declared righteous in such a way that you couldn't pay for it. You didn't have enough resources to purchase one bit of it. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't barter for it. You couldn't rent it. You couldn't muster up a down payment for it. God's act of declaring you righteous is purely by His grace as a gift. And the best way to illustrate this point is if you have your Bibles open, just look down at the first paragraph in Romans 4. Romans 4, verse 4 says, Paul writes this, Now to him who works, to him who earns, we could say, 
to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Another translation says his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. The word is grace there, but you see, even the translators recognize that gift and grace get at the same thing. When you work for something, you don't get in return the gift of grace. You get your due wages. You get what's coming to you. It's unthinkable then to try to work for God's favor. I mean, think of it. it, it you, you can't put God in your debt. That's... It's not possible. Can you imagine a, ser- a, scenario, uh, a scenario in which God actually owed you something? If so, then you have failed to imagine just how bad off things are between you and God naturally. You and I can't we can't remind ourselves enough that our salvation, our release from the punishment and power of sin is a gift of God's grace. You need the gospel of grace regularly to confront your chronic tendency to try to earn your righteousness from God by working for it, by doing something to cause it, to produce it, to trigger it, to reinforce it. To make it firmer. Constantly need to be reminding ourselves. I made this point two weeks ago. And I'm going to make it again. It was slightly different application and verbiage. Because it's good to hear again. As Paul says, to, to say the same thing to you is no trouble to me. And it's safe for you. Your tendency to try to earn righteousness is always lurking under the surface. And it rears its ugly head regularly. Whenever you think God is cold toward you because you've done something that displeases Him. Or whenever you think God is warm, particularly warm toward you because you've performed well. If you ever believe God's fatherly heart opens up to you because you've obeyed His commandments, or if you ever believe that God closes Himself off to you and no longer thinks of you as a son or a daughter because you've disobeyed His commandments, you've bought into the lie that your sonship or daughterhood is something you work for rather than something that was given to you by His grace as a gift. God didn't give you His grace because of anything that you did. And you don't keep His grace, keep His favor, because of anything you do. You receive it as a gift and at no point will you ever pay for it. Remember what the root causes of works righteousness are. Do you remember the two things we talked about? Pride and unbelief. Pride says that I can put God in my debt. I can work hard enough for Him so that He's compelled to, to give me 
even more of His favor, more of His grace, more of His loving kindness. Unbelief says that God would never justify me, would never give me His saving righteousness, would never declare me to be righteous by grace alone, without cost, totally free. Accepting God's grace as a gift requires humility and faith. Humility acknowledges that you could never do anything that would cause God, make God want to give you uh, more of Himself. Or make Him want to give you the gift of His righteousness. It's just not how it works. When He gives it away, it never has anything to do with anything like that. Faith acknowledges that the only way to get the righteousness of God credited to your account is to receive it as a gift of God's grace. The gift of God's grace, when we think of it this way, it can start to seem too good to be true. I mean, is this really true? It's not really how the world works. And then you look at your own heart, and it's not how you work. It's not how you treat people, right, in, in this sort of way. And so we're tempted to think that uh, there's no way God could do that. We can't imagine it because we, we don't really see it except in God. How is it possible? How is this true? What mechanism or instrument does God use to declare sinners to be righteous before Him? That'll help us see how true it is and can be. If you don't pay for it, and if you don't have to pay for it, then, then who does? Somebody has to. Yes, somebody does have to. And that's when we realize that, we can start to see how it is true. Justice is served. Christ Jesus paid for it. The saving righteousness of God is given through redemption. We are declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The gift of God is free to us, but it wasn't totally free. It wasn't free to everyone. It wasn't free to God, He had to purchase it. More specifically, He had to purchase you. And He wanted to purchase you. That's what the word redemption implies here and means. Redemption is a word used of slaves in the ancient world. If a slave was redeemed, it meant that he was purchased from his owner and then set free. And this particular word, redemption, doesn't just mean purchasing a slave to then be, so that he can become your slave. It means purchasing a slave for the purpose of setting this slave free. The word ransom is at the root of this word redemption that Paul uses. If I was, so if I was a slave and you wanted to release me from my bondage, to my slave owner, you would have to pay a ransom to be my owner. And when the ransom money was paid in full, then I would become 
a free man because that would have been your purpose in putting up this ransom, this kind of redemption that Paul's talking about. I would be free after you paid the price. Redemption is release or deliverance from bondage by the payment of a ransom. So redemption and ransom, they, these words have become sort of religious sounding to us, but these words were not originally theological terms. They've become theological because Scripture uses them to describe how God has released us from our bondage to sin. So what's the, what, what was the cost? What, what is the price that had to be paid? What kind of ransom did God have to put up to rescue us? In Mark 10.45, Jesus says that the price of our redemption was nothing less than His own life. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is what Paul means when he says at the end of verse 24, that the ground on which God gives us His righteousness, the, the basis of his, this gift of grace is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus Himself is the ransom. He's the payment. Jesus Himself. God gave Himself as the ransom payment. His death on the cross is the payment for your release. And what are we released from? What have you been delivered from? From the guilt and grip of unrighteousness. From the penalty and power of sin. Sin was your owner, your slave master. Guilt was your dungeon, your slave fort. And condemnation would have been your payment. Sin, guilt, and condemnation were your cruel masters. that we willingly subjected ourselves to. But Christ, through His redeeming death on the cross, paid the ransom price to deliver you from your bondage. And people, this, this, is, this is great news. People of God, Jesus purchased you. He purchased your release by becoming sin for you, by taking on your guilt for you, by receiving your condemnation for you. Jesus became a slave so that you could become free. He subjected Himself to your slave owners, your punishment so that you could be declared righteous. He was condemned for your sins so that you could be released from them. Jesus redeemed you from sin so that He could give you His righteousness. And so you're not just redeemed. You're not just released from the bondage. You're also righteous in Christ. You're not just free from sin's fiefdom. 
You're not just pardoned from sin's penalty. You're also considered to be sinlessly obedient before God because you are united to Jesus Christ, the one who was sinlessly obedient on your behalf. And all of this is as free as anything could be free. It's even more impossible to earn this redemption, to earn this righteousness, than it is for a nursing babe to earn her mother's love and affection. Both your redemption and your righteousness are absolute gifts from God. This truth is as important to remember as it is difficult to believe. It's as important to remember as it is difficult to believe. But it's critical that you remember and believe it. Especially, especially when you, fa when you come face to face with the depths of your depravity and unrighteousness your sin, your wickedness, which sometimes happens more than other times. Re regrettably, most of us tend to ignore or minimize the sinfulness of our sin, don't we? We lack the spiritual fortitude to see our wickedness for what it really is. It's hard to do. We don't have the same problem when it comes to other people, typically. We, we tend to inflate the sinfulness of other people's sin, but we seldom allow ourselves to take an honest look in the mirror and to see what's really there. And of, of course, the reason for this is that we're constantly trying to, to justify ourselves. We're constantly trying to create a narrative in which we are basically righteous with some foibles. Or at least more righteous than most of the people around me. But occasionally God, in His goodness, in His grace, He exposes the facade and He forces us to look our ungodliness and unrighteousness, our wretchedness, square in the eyes. Or closer to it than we've ever been before, to seeing it square in the eyes. And this, this is painful, it always hurts, right? But it's always good for us always good for you to experience this because the only way through that kind of a situation, the only way to, the, uh, you know, to, to, to get to the other side is to remember and believe that you are a redeemed and righteous child of God solely on the basis of what God has done for you in Christ and not at all because of any innate, inborn righteousness of your own. If you don't come to that recognition, it, it's just despair, right? And so consider this week, children, adults, consider this week, people of God, the freeness of the redemption that is yours in Christ Jesus. The freeness of your righteousness, of your righteous standing before Christ Jesus. The freeness of God's grace to you in Christ Jesus. Force yourself to believe that you're not more righteous before God when you're experiencing some kind of victory over a particular sin. Force yourself to accept that there's a host of sins that you're still not experiencing full victory over. Even if you can't 
identify all of them, even if you're still in denial. Just know that they're there. Believe it. Force yourself to believe that the sinfulness of your sin is a lot worse than you think. And then meditate on these truths until you, have, until you are convinced that your redemption and righteousness is in no way whatsoever dependent on how bad off you are or how far you've come. So, so your redemption and righteousness don't go away because you're so bad off or they don't get, you know, they don't get more secure because you've come a long way. Jesus came to redeem real sinners. That's one of the things that I, that, that I want us to get before we leave this passage. We're, it's going to get reinforced in the rest of Romans. Jesus came to redeem really really bad sinners, horrible sinners, dreadful, contemptible, appalling, shameful sinners. Not mild sinners, not medium sinners, not pretty bad sinners, but unrighteous, self-seeking, ungrateful, lustful, dishonest, useless, wretched, fornicating, wicked, greedy, malicious, gossiping, slandering, God-hating, insolent, Arrogant, boastful, disobedient, unloving, unmerciful, unforgiving, thieving, lying, coveting, disrespectful, murdering, idolatrous sinners who sin in these ways daily until they die with very imperfect repentance. If, you don't, if that's not you, then, you have, then Christ didn't come to die for you. That, that's the kind of sinner Christ came to die for. So we need to learn to see ourselves in this way so that we can appreciate the grace of God and so that we can extend grace to others. One of the things Paul has been talking about in Romans 2 especially is the hypocrisy and, and uh, a judgmental spirit you, know, you judge others, but you do the same things, Paul says. We do that when we don't appreciate the grace of God and the sin, the sinfulness of sin. So if you don't see yourself as the chief sinner in a world of awful sinners, then God may have a plan in place to help you reach that conclusion that you are the chief sinner. And, and when He brings you to this realization, know that He does it because He loves you. And He wants the best for you. He, he does it because He wants you to experience the Gospel. He wants you to believe it and live in it. Live in the joy of the Gospel, which requires knowing how bad it is so that we can know how good the grace of God is. He wants you to know what it means that you have been declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray and ask Him to help us do that. Oh God, we thank You for this wonderful news. It's beyond better than anything we've ever heard. 
Help us to believe it. And help us to grow in our gratitude for what you've done for us in Jesus. And then from that gratitude to live a life of obedience and repentance, mortifying our sin, killing the lingering sin because it is what you want, because it is your will for our lives. And yet we thank you that our repentance, uh, the, the quality of our repentance, the quality of our obedience is not the, the linchpin of our salvation, but that rather it is the work and righteousness of Christ alone that, make, that, that, that uh, causes you to declare us righteous before you. Oh God, help us to believe these truths truth and to live them out this week. For Christ's sake, amen.